0: And we'll be looking at both the passages this morning, both Hebrews and Exodus. Nancy, my wife, prefers when I don't talk to her during movies. You have somebody like that, you're trying to focus and trying to talk to you during the movie. But when we're watching movies, especially if it's a thriller or some kind of unfolding story, I just cannot resist. And so I lean over and I whisper. I say, oh, you need, to, you need to remember that part. That's going to come back. That's going to be part of the ending. She puts up with those irritations. And by now she's figured out she likes it. I like it when she tells me how smart I am. So when the movie's over, she says something like this. How, how is it that you always pick up these clues or these foreshadowings in the middle of the story that always come to work back out at the end of the story? When you read Hebrews, it's like sitting next to somebody who likes to whisper to you during the movie. Because the the writer of Hebrews is looking at this unfolding drama of the Old Testament. And every time there's a picture, he wants to nudge you and say, hey, that's going to matter in the end. That's going to be a a foreshadowing of something that's going to come about. So you you need to sort of log that little piece of information in your mind because you're going to see it again. And you're going to say, oh, yes, okay, now I see that. And so we're here with the writer of Hebrews, and he's telling us some things. And he's saying, look, everything in the Old Testament, this unfolding drama, this thriller of the Old Testament is pointing to one particular person and one particular event. And that's the person of Jesus Christ, his life, his death and his resurrection. So when you look at Hebrews in chapter 1 and you come across angels, the the writer of Hebrews is sitting next to you and saying, okay, okay, now, the person that's coming, he's gonna be superior to angels. And then you, you keep going in the unfolding drama and you get to Moses and the writer of Hebrews and says, okay, Moses, now, he's pointing somewhere, he's pointing at Jesus. So you need to pay attention to this little piece of information. When you read about the Sabbath in the Old Testament, Oh, okay, okay. You know this rest that God's talking about? The real rest is going to come when Jesus Christ comes. In chapter 5, when you read about the high priest, He says, okay, now this is just a shadow of the real high priest that's coming. The real high priest is going to be Jesus. And so all the shadows of the Old Testament are just shadows. They give you a, an outline of What's to come and when the real things come, then you don't need the shadows anymore Now I just thought about this in terms of trying to help uh, Maybe our younger students here. What what would this look like? And I thought this way? We have a spotlight up there and if we turn that spotlight on today, and I stood on the stage you would see my shadow And you would be able to tell some things by just looking at the shadow. You would say, okay, it looks like a person. It doesn't look like a tree or something like that. You would say, well, it looks like the person maybe has short hair. It looks like the person is extremely athletic. I mean, these are the kinds of conclusions that you would naturally come to by looking at the shadow. And then when when the real person popped out on the stage, you'd say, Wow! So much better than the shadow! Right? Isn't that what you would say? Some people say, uh, Pastor, go back to the shadow. <laughs> Look better in the shadow. But that's that's what the picture is. You, you see these shadows and you go, Okay, it looks something like this. But then the, the real person comes out. Christ comes out and you go, Yes, I should have seen it all along! This is the real thing. And you get attached now to the real thing and the shadows begin to fade away. They're just simply markers to the destination. And when Jesus arrives, he's the destination. And so this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, I mean, in the book of Jeremiah, the best way to examine Jeremiah is to look at how the Hebrew writer talks about this new covenant. So we're... Looking at Hebrews this morning, and I'm just going to ask these two questions. What's wrong with the old covenant? I mean, the writer says there's a fault. And because there's some kind of fault, you're naturally leaning towards, well, okay, there's something faulty here, so I've got to be looking for something else. And so I want to try to look at what's wrong with that first old covenant. And secondly, What are a couple of the new covenant characteristics? We find ourselves in the new covenant. So what are some characteristics about the new covenant? First of all, what's wrong with the old covenant? You see in verse six and seven, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. I looked at that phrase and thought, you know, if I use that in a term paper, you know, my editor would say much more excellent. You know, let's try something else. But I think the writer is just saying I can't get enough good words packed together to help you understand how much better this second covenant's going to be. Some versions say superior or exceedingly better. Christ has obtained a ministry that is superior than to the old, just as the covenant he mediates is better. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So here I want to turn back to Exodus chapter 24, To help us understand the first covenant, because this is where this covenant gets confirmed, is back in Exodus. And we see it in the beginning in verse 7. Moses has led his people out of Egypt, and here they are around Mount Sinai, and he's going to take the, the law, and he's reading it to them. He took the book of the covenant, and he's reading it to the people. And what do the people say after he's read the law? He's read the Ten Commandments. The people say, we get it. And we are going to do that. And then Moses seals this covenant with blood. And then something very interesting happens in verses 9 through 11. Moses, Aaron and his two sons and these 70 elders... Look what it says. They went up and met with God and they sat down and had a meal together. I mean, you already know as New Covenant people where we're moving towards, where somewhere we're going to sit down at some table with God and we're actually going to have this meal together. And that's what's happening at the end of the Old Covenant. There's a meal that's being shared between God and His people. And really... Unbelievably, God Almighty is saying to his people, I want to be your friend. Would you mind just coming over for dinner? Can we just sit down and share a meal together? Just you and me. He looks at you and I and his first impulse. Impulse we have a meal together? I'd like that. And the people of God say, yes, we we want that. And we get that by, by keeping the covenants, by keeping the commands. Doesn't that sound exciting? Let me make sure you hear what I'm saying. Moses reads the law. And he says, if you keep the commands, you get into the meal. And we say, we are going to keep the commands. Now, does that sound exciting? You get in because you keep the commands. It's a little less exciting, isn't it? Because you're saying to yourself, uh, I don't think I'm going to keep all those. I mean, even if you just give me the top ten list, I'm going to struggle with just ten of them. So there's a problem and we, we get nervous, we, we start shaking because we understand that the problem isn't with the commands, the problem is with the people. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with our heart. We can't seem to keep the commands. And so you see this cycle happen in the Old Testament over and over again. And I call it this, I call it the do better cycle. I'm fairly certain that everybody here is familiar with the do-better cycle. What happens is that somebody comes along like Moses, he reads the law, the people hear the law and say, yes, okay, yes, I hear it, it's very simple, there's nothing cloudy about it, and I'm promising I'm going to keep that law. And what happens over time? You know, for whatever reason, whether you mean to or you don't mean to, you just can't keep the law. And so you have another man of God come by. Hey, let's remember the law. Going to keep that law this time? We are really going to keep the law. Okay. And then they don't keep the law. And then you have this cycle, this do better cycle that sort of runs through. And you see it even in Jeremiah, the end of Second Kings. Chapter 23, Josiah, the king in Jeremiah's time, he's discovered the law. And the people haven't been following the law, and he's going to read the law to them, and he says this, Josiah called together all the elders, he went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant, the king renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands with all of his heart and all of his soul. And then all of the people, they pledged themselves to keep the covenant. This is the same thing that happened in Exodus chapter 24. We're having the exact same situation happen now in the end of the kings and second kings. You know the do better cycle, don't you? Probably happens to everybody here January 1st. Oh, you know, this year, this year I'm going to do better. You definitely know it if you're in a parent child relationship. You know this do better cycle, don't you? The parent comes to the child and clearly articulates some very easy principles to live by in this house. Things like, you know what, let's treat the house like the house, not like your personal bedroom. We don't want all of your stuff scattered all over the house. We would like your stuff in your room. It isn't that painfully clear and simple. Or like, you know, after you have a wet towel, after the shower, there are four available hooks in the bathroom for you. And all we'd like for you to do is take the wet towel, put it on any one of the four hooks. Now these are just examples. I don't know if this actually happens in a family. I'm just giving you some examples. And what happens? The child says, I get it. I'm going to keep this law right now. I can do it. But I have it on good evidence that over time, there's some slippage. And the parent has to remind the child of the commandments, perhaps applying some heat or pressure of some kind, and saying, let's remember what we've agreed to here. And every parent knows that. Every child understands that. It's the do better cycle. You hear it, you know it, it's clear, but something's wrong. You just can't seem to do it. If you grew up in small, sort of small town Baptist churches like I did, you had the annual revival. Some preacher from another city came and it was for three days in the fall or three days in the spring and he was a fiery one. You know, you got somebody in there that you could really, you couldn't fall asleep on this guy. And he told you what you needed to do and he had all the mannerisms down and every year, You'd come down the aisle going, this is the year. I'm going to do better. And it's that cycle of the Old Testament. We see it in our own lives. And we can conclude in our own lives or in the lives of the people in the Old Testament, the do better cycle does not work. The do better cycle never fully takes And so Jeremiah understands this. And in chapter 30, sort of totally exhausted with his congregation, he looks at them and he says this. Your wound is incurable. Your injury is beyond healing. And there's no one left to plead your case. This is a low point. We we tried to do better. We've tried it 25 years. It's just not taken. And I can see that you have a wound that cannot be cured. You have a disease that knows no healing. There's nobody left to come in and mediate for you. And Hebrews chapter 8 verse 9 shows how this old covenant ends. Because they did not remain faithful to me. And in the NIV it says this, I turned away. That's the end of the old covenant. The do better covenant didn't take. The people couldn't keep the commands. And so God Himself turned away. And that's where we're left. And we ask, Is there is there any kind of hope? God I see the this do-better cycle. I understand the commands. I just can't keep them. Is there any way I can live under a new covenant? Any chance of that? And Jesus comes on in the scene and says, Yes! There is a new covenant. And the new covenant, guess what? It's not going to be about what you do. It's going to be about what God's done. And it's a, it's, a, it's a new thing. In fact, the old covenant was meant and is working well when it points you to the fact that you can't keep it. You can't be religious enough to get to God. And once you understand that and you say, I just can't make it on my own, you're looking around for a seven second covenant, and Jesus says, I'm it. And I'm going to keep the covenant on your behalf. You trust in me, and I'm going to get you All the way home. And that's the new covenant. So let's look at that just briefly in a couple of ways. Verse 10. Here is one of the things that we read in our call to worship. I will put my laws in their minds and write them, but I'm going to write them on their hearts. Something new is happening. It's going to be an internal work. It's going to be an inside-out work rather than the law is an outside-in work. All of us understand that. The law always takes an outside-in approach. Here are the things that you're not doing well. Here they are written out, and this is what you need to do. You're trying to fix all of the outside components of somebody without really addressing the issues of the heart. But you understand that the law can never get to your heart. It might motivate your behavior. If you see a police officer driving behind you, you're highly motivated to go the speed limit. But that doesn't mean in your heart you want to go to the speed limit. That just means you don't want to ticket. So some external pressure has been applied for you now to be obedient. But it doesn't mean that's changed the condition of your heart. I used this illustration about a couple of months ago. And somebody was telling me a time that he and his family went out to dinner. You remember this? And they had several kids... And the kids were mostly being good except for one of them. And the one of them said, I want to stand up in the booth during my dinner. But this is usually not a preferable activity during your dinner. And so the father says, hey, you know what? If you don't sit down, you're not going to get dessert. And so that's all he says. Then sort of over the course of the meal, as the dessert time is getting closer, what do you recognize? Little kid gets closer to the seat. Finally sits down. Dessert comes out. Everybody gets one except for the little kid. <gasps> I'm sitting down. And the father said, yeah, you eventually sat down. But I could tell you were standing up in your heart. You ever felt that way? Hey, I'm, I'm physically doing something, but really the problem is I have a heart condition. I actually need a heart transplant. I need something to be happening internally to me before I could ever begin to obey the external laws. And when Jesus comes, He's saying, I'm gonna start with your heart. That's what I'm going to start with. That's what I'm most concerned about. And then once we get your heart right, then the external things can fall out from that. But if we don't have the right heart, we're going to be in trouble. And Ezekiel says this about the heart transplant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and then you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities. How? How are you going to do that? I will give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your old heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. It's an internal spiritual rebirth. It's exactly what Nicodemus learns. Remember when he comes to visit Jesus? And Jesus is using this language about being born again. Nicodemus is totally external. How does that work? Because I'm pretty sure, you know, physically, I don't see how that's going to really happen. And Jesus says, no, it's a spiritual thing. Something has to be reborn inside of you. You and I don't need repair. Nobody here needs repair. Everybody here needs rebirth. We need a, a totally new starting point. And that's exactly what the Spirit of God is doing. So the New Covenant takes this inside-out approach. Titus says it this way, once we were disobedient, we saw the law, we didn't keep it. But when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. How how does he save us? Is it by, is it like the old covenant? Is it by keeping the Ten Commandments? No. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He saved us through the washing and rebirth of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you're a religious person, you know you're a religious person if you think something like this. You know, if if I obey, I think God's going to accept me. If you work in that mindset, then you're what the Bible calls a religious person. If I obey, if I do more good than bad, and I sort of show up, then God's going to accept me. And the Bible couldn't be any clearer that that's not going to work. If you're a Christian, you say, look... I'm completely accepted because of what Jesus has done. My acceptance has been finished. It is finished. No more work on my part needs to be done in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That work has been completely done by Christ. Because I understand that, then I have a desire to obey. That's Christianity. Religion is I obey so I can be accepted. Christianity is I've been accepted. Therefore, I have a desire to obey. The second thing we see in verse 12, we ask ourselves, well, how does this really take place? Verse 12 "For, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. If you were to read ahead in Hebrews 9 and 10, you would see that because of the Old Covenant and the continual breaking of the commands, what had to happen regularly? Sacrifice had to be made. And once a year, this unblemished lamb, this perfect lamb, this symbol, this shadow of a lamb that was to come was sacrificed every year for the sins of the people. And Hebrews 10:12 says this. You want to know about that sacrifice? Jesus Christ offered for one one for all time a single sacrifice for sins. By his single sacrifice he has made perfect forever Those who are being made holy. By His single sacrifice, He has made you and I, people who have claimed Christ as our Savior, holy forever. I just want to really make sure you hear that. I wouldn't believe it was true. I don't think myself. It weren't, if it weren't written here. Because of Christ's death on the cross, you are perfect. You are perfect. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you don't know what I think. You don't know some of the things I do. How is it that I could be perfect? Well, in the Old Covenant, I'm not. And so I need something else to wrap itself around me so that when God looks at me, He doesn't see the way I see myself. He sees somebody else. And He sees Christ. Remember in the Old Testament, I mean in the Old Covenant, the end of the Old Covenant, what happened? God turns away. And Jesus Christ comes in at the Last Supper. Remember what he says? This is the blood of what? The new covenant. And so when on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, all of your breaking of the law was put on Christ. And all of his perfections were transferred to you. And so God turns away from his son in order to turn back to you. He was forsaken so that you can be accepted. That's what's happening in this new covenant. And so in Jeremiah chapter 20 or chapter 30, when he sort of exhaustingly looks at his congregation and he says, there's nobody left to mediate. Then God says, no, no, Jeremiah, let's look at chapter 31. There's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a a new mediator. There's going to be somebody who comes down and, and bridges the gap. And when the gap gets bridged, Jeremiah, it's going to be up to this person. It's not going to be up to you guys anymore. And he's going to fulfill that Old Testament perfectly. And when you latch on to him, guess what happens? It's the most unbelievable thing. You get to come back to the table. You and I get to be friends with God. He looks at you now as a child of God and He says, You're perfect. Let's be friends. Let's pray together. Lord, I am really hard-pressed to understand how you could look at me And see that I'm perfect. It's so easy for me to live underneath the old covenant and see uh, that I'm not keeping some things. To try to keep a tally or be like an accountant and hope that my good deeds are enough to get me in. And you're looking at me saying, Paul, that is not going to work. Somebody else has to keep it on your behalf. And you need to trust in that person alone for your salvation. And we hear the Hebrew writer today lean over and whisper in our ears and say, Hey, that new covenant, that's going to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so I pray particularly for those people here who still live in an old covenant way in their mind. They're convinced that somehow their good deeds could be enough. I pray that they would see, if for no other reason from Jeremiah, that that's not going to work. And that they would be looking for another covenant. I pray that those who are here who live underneath the grace of the new covenant. That you would help us to move out into this world. Knowing that we're free from your condemnation and free to give our lives away to this city and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.